0: Our text this evening is John chapter 6 as we continue to work our way through the gospel according to John. And we're this evening in verses 52 through 59. In a section here that I've titled Jesus the bread of life. And this evening the subtitle is spiritual eating and drinking. Now hear these words um, of God from... So the apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2:14 these words he says there the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So man is not able apart from the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to understand spiritual things. The natural person that is an unregenerate person who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, cannot understand who Christ is as the Savior of sinners. Now anybody can talk about how Jesus died on the cross for sinners and even talk about how he's the Son of God, but to understand, to truly understand one's personal need for Christ's saving work on the cross and to actually go to him for righteousness requires intervention by God. Embracing Christ in the gospel requires the work of God drawing the sinner to Christ as God enlightens the sinner's mind and renews his will. So what inevitably happens when unregenerate people, natural people, interact with the spiritual matters of God's word is that they can never rise above mundane earthly and physical perspectives. And this manifests itself in what is commonly called external religion. So the natural man just missing out on the spiritual realities of the gospel and of the true way of salvation, the natural man thinks that he can earn God's favor by his good works, which he typically defines in terms of external actions. The Pharisees were masters of this kind of law-keeping. They claim to have kept God's commandments because they ignored any requirements related to the heart. And so in their system, yes, you must not kill your neighbor, but you can hate your neighbor. And you must not commit adultery, but you can lust after someone in your heart. As long as you live morally, outwardly moral lives, they would say you are doing all that God requires. For some, the external good works are related to religion So the idea is if you go to church, if you read your Bibles, if you participate in the sacraments, you memorize scripture and the confessions, you publicly profess your faith, you go to reformed conferences, you study theology, you do any and all of these external things, then you can know that you are a Christian. That's what some would say. And what inevitably happens for these earthly-minded folks is that things that are meant to have a deeper spiritual meaning are understood only in a literal, physical way. So in the Old Testament, the temple and the sacrifices were all designed to point to the fellowship with God that would come through the atoning sacrifice of the Messiah. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system was to strengthen faith in the coming Messiah, and yet for many, what was the temple? It was this beautiful building that inspired... um, Religious feelings. It became a place where you could go and offer sacrifices as a way to earn and to feel God's favor. The law of God was just this body of rules and regulations that sets forth the way to obedience to earn eternal life, when in reality, the law was meant to show God's people, uh, to show sinners how sinful they are, that they would seek righteousness in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so far in John's gospel, there's just been this consistent reporting of how people in Jesus' day were spiritually blind. Blind to who Jesus really was. they're, They're just focused on the things of this world, just focused on the physical level. When Jesus turned water into wine, many were very glad to receive wine and were impressed with what Jesus could do, but were not interested in him as their personal savior. Soon after that, Jesus went into the temple a place that God intended for spiritual worship and what had happened there. It had become a place of business, a house of trade. And when Jesus talked about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days, his listeners were oblivious to the fact that he was talking about the temple of his body and that he could talk this way because he was the fulfillment of all that the temple stood for. They're told that many saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and even believed in his name and yet he was not willing to entrust himself to them. And why is that? Because he knew their hearts and apparently knew that they were not interested in him for spiritual blessings, but only wanted the physical blessings of his miracles. When Nicodemus is told of the need to be born again by the Holy Spirit, all he can think about is natural birth. When the disciples of John see that more people are being baptized by Jesus' disciples, they're not thinking of God's kingdom and glory. They see it as a competition for earthly popularity. Jesus tells the Samaritan woman of this living water that he can give her so that she will have eternal life and never thirst again. She thinks he's talking about physical water. When Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, the Jews condemn Jesus For a Sabbath violation because of this external man-made rule that a person was not to carry a bed mat on the Sabbath. And Jesus points to four witnesses that testify to him being the eternal son of God and yet they do not receive him. They do not pay attention to these witnesses of um, of John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' miraculous works, the Father, the scriptures. And the people in Jesus' audience were familiar with all of these witnesses and yet rejected their message. And what Jesus especially emphasizes is how the scriptures point to him. These people are studying the scriptures and yet they miss that they are about him. When Jesus miraculously feeds a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children from just five loaves and two fish, what do they want to do? They want to make him king so that he can continue to give them physical bread. And when he tells them that he is the bread from heaven come to give life to the world, they can't imagine how he could be from heaven. They know his parents after all. And the point is that unregenerate people are not going to understand spiritual matters in a correct way. And so it is that here in verse 52, this very odd interaction takes place between Jesus and the Jews as as Jesus continues to speak of spiritual things, and he speaks of them in metaphors, and yet they take everything that he says literally. They take it on the physical level. It's almost humorous, except that their lack of understanding is very spiritually dangerous. Their lack of understanding is evident as verse 52 opens with the Jews disputing among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And in a sense, this question makes sense based on what Jesus has said so far. He first made clear that the bread of life of which he spoke is himself. I am the bread of life, he announced to people who were thinking about earthly bread. And then in verses 50 and 51, he said that people should eat of this bread. He declared, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And so he is the bread of life that is to be eaten. And we understand that he's referring to and eating by faith, but they don't understand that. But then at the end of verse 51, Jesus drops this bombshell, the bread is my flesh. And the obvious conclusion that comes from putting together Jesus' statements is that men should eat Jesus' flesh, which is exactly what the Jews were disputing. In verse 52, we are told they were disputing or arguing. It's a very strong word. They were arguing over how Jesus could give his flesh for people to eat. We're not told exactly what the sticking point was in their debate, but it's not hard to imagine that it was over the question, should Jesus' words be taken literally, physically, or symbolically and figuratively? And there would have been some, we, we would surmise, who would have insisted, well, surely we can't take what he's saying literally, that's, it's, that's absurd. And then the literalists, on the other hand, would have insisted, well, how how else is Jesus supposed to be understood here and yes what he is saying is absurd and therefore should be rejected and what john records is the question that's being faced by those on both sides of the argument how can this man give us his flesh to eat and take note of jesus response notice what jesus doesn't do jesus doesn't just cut through all of the confusion and say wait a minute guys i'm talking figuratively It's not what he does. He actually doubles down on using metaphors and actually makes some additional statements that if you are a literalist, you're going to wonder what in the world, even more, what could Jesus possibly be talking about? Notice how he first agrees with their conclusion about eating his flesh. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, you have no life in you, but also notice what he adds. He he suddenly adds another element to the metaphor. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In verse 54, he repeats the matter. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. In verse 55, he says that his flesh is true blood of true food and his blood is true drink. And in verse 56, he again speaks of feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood. In verse 57, he says that whoever feeds on him will live because of him. In verse 58, he turns back to talking about bread and says that whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he's just explained that this life-giving bread has come down from heaven, but is not the manna that their fathers ate and died. And so we see that rather than backing down from his use of figurative language, Jesus persists in using it and even expands on it. And the effect on those who are literalists and who could not bring their minds to rise above the physical level must have been, uh, the effect upon them must have been to think that Jesus is crazy. He's advocating cannibalism. And I would argue that they didn't really want to have to think through what Jesus is saying here and actually make sense of it because they don't want to believe uh, believe in him. They want to believe he's full of crazy talk. That way they can have an excuse to reject him and his message. So what does Jesus mean in calling people to eat his flesh and drink his blood? Well, first, we can rather easily deduce from what Jesus says, that he's again calling people to put their faith in him. It's very logical. It works this way. Jesus has just told us that we have eternal life in the way of believing in him. And now he says that eating his flesh and drinking his blood gives eternal life. And so by deduction, we conclude that eating his flesh and drinking his blood is a figurative way of describing faith in him. You can put it all together this way, back in verse 29, Jesus says, uh, said there that what God calls us to do is to believe in him. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And Jesus also spoke of believing in him as coming to him. Verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so believing in Jesus is the way to have eternal life. It's very clear. Jesus has also said in verse 51 that those who eat the living bread himself will have eternal life. I am the living bread, he says, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so if believing gives eternal life, and eating flesh gives uh, Jesus' flesh gives eternal life, then eating Jesus' flesh is another way to speak of believing in him. Coming to him, eating his flesh, and drinking his blood, these are all figures of speech for faith. So then that raises the question, why? Why? Or how are eating and drinking appropriate figures for faith? The connection between faith and eating, if we want to speak of it in a very basic way, would be something like this, that just as eating is a way of connecting food to our bodies, in a similar way faith unites us to Christ so that we can receive his life and all of his saving benefits. We actually have a number of words in Scripture that are used to help us understand faith that are used to describe faith there's a looking to Jesus faith is described as a as a looking to Jesus as illustrated by the people of God looking upon that bronze serpent in the wilderness and in a way similar to how the people looked upon that serpent looking upon Christ involves first an act of perception that the mind is engaged that I'm now going to pay attention to Christ to help me So there's this act of perception, and then there's a deliberate fixing of the eye on the object. The will is engaged as I decide to look to Christ. And then there's this certain expectation of satisfaction. The emotions and the desires of my heart are engaged in anticipation of receiving salvation from Jesus. And so this is a looking to Jesus, born out of a sense of need, and anticipating that he will give us what we need as we direct our longing to him. As we found in the last several sections of verses 35 through 51, faith is depicted as a coming to Jesus and receiving him, and with an expectation of our being received graciously by him. So faith in in this figure is an action in which you go to Jesus to receive what you do not have, namely righteousness. Righteousness. And here in the verses we are considering, the emphasis is on faith as a hungering and a thirsting that issues forth in eating and drinking. Hungering and thirsting is something that we experience every day. And when we feel hunger or when we feel thirst, it's our body's way of saying that something is lacking. And that hunger and thirst pushes us to go and obtain what we need. And so typically we go to the kitchen and there we find food and drink and we consume them. And this makes us think of faith because in going to Christ and looking to Christ, we do so because there's a sense of need. That's the hungering and thirsting for him. And just as we take food and drink to ourselves because we are convinced they will satisfy our hunger and thirst, so it is we look to Jesus and we go to Jesus believing that he will satisfy our hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It also makes sense to connect faith with eating food and drinking water because they're so vitally connected to life. Without food and drink, we die. But with them, we experience strength. We experience life-giving refreshment. And so it is that with Christ, when we look to him by faith, eating his flesh, drinking his blood, we experience the life-giving refreshment of eternal life. By faith, we are granted righteousness, the perfect record of Christ imputed to us, which in turn enables us to have fellowship with our holy God and to be recipients of his love and blessings. And this fellowship in turn means that one day we will live with God in heaven forever, that we will at death escape the condemnation of our sins and experience being with God, being with Christ in the paradise of heaven. So there's no doubt that eating Jesus by faith gives us life. I'm talking about in the fullest spiritual sense as fellowship with God, free of the curse of sin. uh, We must not neglect to see that in Jesus' words here, we also have a clear declaration the fact that faith in Christ is a faith in him as our atoning savior. It, it, it's a declaration that our faith in him is as our atoning savior. Notice that when Jesus speaks of drinking, the drinking is not of water, but of blood. Sounds gross, right? It it shocks us. What's he talking about? And the Jews who heard this, um, these words from Jesus must have immediately freaked out in their minds because of what the Old Testament law said about blood. I'm referring uh, now uh, back in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 17, and I would have you turn there for a moment. Leviticus 17, beginning at verse 10, through the first part of verse 14. Leviticus 17, beginning at verse 10. If any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger eat who sojourns among you, eat blood. Anyone else, anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So blood was not to be consumed. And the reason why, they were forbidden from eating blood, that is, animal flesh with its blood in it. It was because, verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Verse 14, also very important, for the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Notice how blood and life are used interchangeably. And notice as well how blood and the soul are connected the soul, I would define as man's spirit, as it animates his physical body. It's what gives his body life and movement. And the soul is practically identified with blood, since both the soul and the blood are necessary for life. And of course, if you drain away a person's blood, they die, and their soul is separated from their body. But the main thing that's emphasized to God's people here in Leviticus 17 is that in the Old Testament, atonement is made through blood. Atonement is the payment of a price that enables a person um, uh, to live who has forfeited his life. And uh, what God accepted in the Old Testament on behalf of sinners was the blood of animal sacrifices. Now, it wasn't that the lifeblood of an animal could actually atone for sin... Nevertheless, the blood poured out in animal sacrifice was special because by God's own appointment, it symbolized Jesus' blood that would be shed on the cross. And so when Jesus says that those who would have eternal life are to eat his flesh and to drink his blood, he's saying that he's going to die and that his blood will atone for sin. It is through his suffering and death on the cross in body and soul That Jesus will pay the ransom price that will set sinners free from death. And this makes clear then that faith in Jesus is a trusting in his blood shed on the cross to provide atonement, to earn salvation for us, to give us life. Life is in his blood. And in some, if the Jews had been able to get past their first reaction to stop thinking literally, they'd have realized that Jesus is saying he's going to be the atoning sacrifice for sin that he is the source of life, that it's his blood that gives us life. To eat of his flesh, to drink of his blood is to look to him uh, by faith as, as your source of righteousness, as your source of life, and on the and all on the basis of his atoning death on the cross. So this brings us then to a consideration as our second and final point this evening, a consideration of the result. What is laid out here as the result of this spiritual eating and drinking of Christ? And the result is twofold, life and union. Life, first of all, if the eating and drinking of physical food and drink is important to life, then how much more important is it to eat and drink spiritually in a way that sustains life eternally? This is the point of Jesus saying in verse 55 that his flesh is true food and his blood is is true drink. Back in verse 51, Jesus said that his flesh is what is given for the life of the world. And I think I pointed out back then when we covered that verse that this word flesh doesn't mean simply, um, not usually anyway, um, doesn't mean just the physical body. It actually is a word that refers to the entire human nature, body and soul. It's a separate word for flesh. Or, um, or for the body. Um, so then why does he, in the verses that we are considering this evening, distinguish his blood from his flesh? And it must be to make clear that the life that Jesus gives us is not just physical, but also spiritual, if there was any question about that. Because again, it's possible in some contexts that flesh, this word for flesh, would mean only the body. And since the Jews were stuck in the physical realm, uh, they would naturally think that to eat Jesus' flesh is to eat only his body because you can't, of course, physically eat someone's soul. So to point to the fact that something more than just his physical body is in view, Jesus points out that this eating is not just involving his body, there's also the drinking of his blood, which contains life that's connected to the soul. And the point is that Jesus' death on the cross, in which he gave himself not just his body, but he gave himself body and soul to death for sinners, that death gives physical and spiritual life to those who put their faith in him. That, this is why his flesh is true bread and his blood true drink. The life that he gives is not just physical, but it's spiritual And all through these verses, he speaks of eternal life. And yes, there is a raising up, notice, a raising up on the last day, which he refers to several times here, again and again. And that involves the physical body, but there is more going on than just a granting of physical life after death. The life he gives is spiritual life of both body and soul, dwelling in fellowship with God in heaven. And as the bread of life, Jesus gives life to those who have faith in him. This is a, a certainty. This is an absolute certainty. Those who have faith in him will have life. In verse 57, Jesus explains the life he has and why he is able to give life to others. He says, the father who lives. And we would understand that, that language there, that, that choice of words to, to mean that God has life in himself. And it's this father who lives, who sent him, and that, and that he lives, the idea here is that, is that he lives because of the Father. As we think of the life of the Father, of course, that's not physical life. It's spiritual life. The Father is not physical. God is not physical. He has not a body like men. And therefore, the life that he grants Jesus is also spiritual in nature. Now, yes, Jesus became flesh. The Word, the Son, was, giving, was given a living physical body, but the life that Jesus has from the Father is first spiritual and eternal. And furthermore, notice that Jesus says, whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. And so the idea is that the Father gives life to Jesus. Jesus is then, as a mediator, able to give life out of his life to those who feed on him. And notice. That before we ever feed on Jesus by faith, we already have physical life. That's not what we're, he's talking about here. So, the life that Jesus is talking about must be spiritual life. He's talking about the new birth, he's talking about the life of fellowship with God. He's talking about this full orbed life with God called eternal life. It's a life that, yes, involves the resurrection of the body on judgment day, but it's primarily a spiritual relationship, a fellowship with God centered in the soul. And over against those who can only think of physical eating and physical life, Jesus teaches that one of the main results of his of, uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood is eternal life. And that this feeding on Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood is spiritual in nature is confirmed by another result, which is highlighted here in these verses which is union with Christ where there's a mutual sharing in each other's life. Jesus says in verse 56 whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That word abide means to stay, to remain, it it the, the idea is there there's a dwelling Um, taking place and, and then an abiding. It indicates a joining of Jesus and the believer in a spiritual union. And the instrument of this union is faith. And the result of the union from Jesus' side is that he gives us life, his life. He nourishes our souls. He gives help. He gives blessing. He gives life through the personal presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And then the abiding in Him from our side is a continuing to trust in Him and in that way to continue to receive with joy the benefits of His death. Um, These benefits include a a clear conscience by which you and I can know that in the future there is going to be no condemnation. Remember the words of Scripture in Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that expression, in Christ Jesus, means abiding in him by faith, and he in us, that in Christ is a, is a union with Christ where we mutually share in each other's life as he grants us his righteousness and life. And this mutual abiding of us in Jesus and he in us that comes about through feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood helps us to understand what Jesus meant when he said his flesh is true food and his blood true drink. So you think of the things that give and sustain life, there's really no comparison between physical life and the eternal life that Christ gives. Yes, earthly food and drink sustain earthly life, and earthly life is something that God has given us, and by his grace he sustains us in that life as long as uh, it is his purpose for us to have that life. But earthly life serves as a mere picture of the reality, which is, Jesus Christ giving himself on the cross in order that we might have eternal life. Think of it, if all you have is physical life while remaining spiritually dead, you're missing out on what life is all about. But by faith in Jesus Christ, you can have spiritual life that comes from union with him. And the result of faith is this reality, really, of the covenant of God in Christ being your God and you being his people in this relationship of fellowship and friendship. Well, I want to conclude this evening by addressing what may be for some of you the elephant in the room, which is this. Do these verses have anything to do with the Lord's Supper? Do these verses have anything to do with the Lord's Supper? It's actually surprising how many commentators will say absolutely not. And uh, they do make some good points, but let me get into this a moment. And uh, I would say that the connections are really rather natural. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus points to the bread of Passover. He says that bread is his body, and he calls upon his disciples to eat it. And Jesus points to the wine of Passover, says that it is his blood, and calls upon his disciples to drink it. And and, uh, what needs to be clearly stated, though, is that there's not a direct correspondence. There's not a necessary connection between the eating and drinking that Jesus is talking about here in John 6 and the eating and drinking of the Lord's Supper. In other words, we're not supposed to equate the two. They're not the same thing. For the only way that you eat and drink Jesus is by putting faith in him. And when people eat and drink the the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, we know that not all participate with faith, which means that for some, all they eat and drink in the Lord's Supper is physical bread and wine. Not everyone spiritually partakes of Christ because for some, they're not discerning the Lord's body in their eating of the sacrament. But if you eat and drink, the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, with a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are partaking as a way to remember his death, to express your faith in his atoning sacrifice on the cross, then you are eating and drinking Christ's flesh and blood. And you can be sure that he is giving himself to you. For the eating and drinking and the consequent satisfying of hunger and thirst, and the giving and sustaining of life takes place whenever there is faith, but the point would be only when there is faith. And so gone must be a mechanical view of a celebration of the Lord's Supper that whoever eats and drinks the elements is eating and drinking Christ. No, we don't know that. Um, There is no substitute for a genuine looking to Christ alone to give spiritual life. So I ask you this evening, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness, knowing that you lack righteousness of your own? And have you gone to Christ to give you righteousness and to give you spiritual life? And if you have, you will be satisfied because by means of faith, you will experience what it means to eat the bread of life. By means of faith in Christ, you essentially feed on him. Because what happens as you trust in the Lord Jesus is that he enters into your heart and life. He unites himself with you. And he nourishes you spiritually for all eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who alone is able to satisfy this hungering and thirsting for righteousness. This great need that we have. Father, we thank you for working in our hearts and awareness of our great need for that which we do not have, but that which Christ has and which he offers to us. And, uh, Father, we thank you for what he has done uh, through his atoning death on the cross to enable us to be able to have this righteousness and to have this hunger and, and thirst quenched. And, Lord, we ask that you would continue to nourish us spiritually as we look to, to you, as we look to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith. Lord, continue to give us, we pray, an assurance of the fact that we are righteous through Christ. We thank you that in the Lord's Supper, that's what you do. You, you assure us that even as we eat and drink bread and wine, as, as we do these physical things, it's a reality that those who put their faith and trust in Christ receive his righteousness. Father, what an amazing thing that you would send your Son to be the bread of life for us who deserve death. And uh, Father, we pray that we would continue to, to grow in our um, awareness of, of what Christ has done for us, that we would love him more, that we would serve, uh, serve you more and more faithfully. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.